Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'm really excited to introduce Brian McCormick to the Philosophy podcast. Uh, I'm a big fan of Brian's work. He's the head basketball coach at Broward College down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, but he's an author. He's a, got a PhD. Um, he is a coach, and he is, uh, much like me, he is just incredibly uh, passionate about uh, his sport and how best to teach it and how best to learn it might even be a better way of putting it. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me. Appreciate it. So, um, for those of you guys who don't know, follow Brian on, on Twitter, um, Brian McCormick. Um, what's, your, what's your Twitter handle there, Brian? Uh, uh, Brian McCormick. Brian, you've got so many great articles and tweets and books that you've written, um, and there's a lot of interesting topics that I want to chat with you about, but I, I did a blog post the other day um, on my version of fake fundamentals in lacrosse, but I would love to hear some of yours. Um, you kind of coined the term, as far as I know, fake fundamentals, which basically means um, the stuff that we've all done because that's what how we were taught, um, but aren't necessarily the best ways or even the right way to teach or do things. Can you talk a little bit about your book and a little bit about some examples of fake fundamentals in basketball? Yeah, sure. Um... Yeah, so the basic idea is, you know, um, it's something that looks like it's fundamental or it looks like it, you know, really has a purpose. But when you actually think about it, uh, you know, the transfer to games is minimal to none. Um, so the one that I tend to use the most is the three-man weave, uh, just because everybody does it at just about every single practice. Um, and it's not even, to me, it's not even that the three-man weave is wrong. Um, it's that it's not passing practice, you know? So like, I know when I, when I uh, played in Europe, you know, I, I coached in Europe and consequently I played on the men's team while I was coaching a women's team. Um, it wasn't like I was a professional player or anything. Um, but we used to do the three-man weave when I was playing. We would, we would do the three-man weave uh, at almost every practice. And, and one, we would do it differently every practice or we do different variations. So in that respect, you know, to me, it has more value than just doing the same three-man weave every single practice. Um, but we really did it for conditioning. You know, it was just, it was a way to get us, you know, because, you know, it was a lower division team, a second division team. You know, we practiced twice a week. Um, you know, so it wasn't, you know, like, you know, what we would think of as professional basketball. It was more like your local parks and rec, you know, where you show up and you play and some guys are out of shape and some guys are in shape. It was a little bit more like that. So, you know, our coach would have us doing three-man weaves, you know, for 15 minutes at the beginning of practice. And basically that was our conditioning. Um, and so if you're going to tell me the three-man weave drill is your conditioning drill, you know, fine. If that's how you want to condition, you know, great. Um, you know, there might be better ways, but, but I, can, I can understand uh, a three-man weave as conditioning. But if you're going to tell me it's your passing practice or what I see frequently is committed too many turnovers, uh, yesterday in our game, let's go and we're going to do a lot of passing today at practice. Okay, three lines. All right, three-man weave. Um, 
to me, that's just, it's, it's not solving the problem. You know, most passing problems in games beyond, you know, let's say the under eight level uh, are not the inability to throw a pass. It's, it's the timing of the pass or not seeing a help defensive player, you know, or not, uh, you know, coordinating the teamwork with a, with a, um, you know, teammate, you know, maybe I think you're going to curl to the basket and instead you pop out and I throw the ball to the basket while you're running to the three-point line. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, those are the mistakes that, that cause, you know, passing turnovers most often. And, uh, you know, those things just aren't um, covered or practiced during a three-man weave drill. You know, and then on top of that, um, I, I worked for like a week with a junior high uh, program program. Um, years ago when I was living in New Mexico and the varsity coach came down and he was kind of running the trials and stuff. And I was just kind of helping during trials uh, for most of it. And so he started every day and we did a three man weave at the beginning. And I just kind of sat there and rolled my eyes. And then like the last hour of practice, you know, I would get, I think I was going to coach the sixth grade team or the seventh grade team. I can't remember. So I would get the players that were, you know, the seventh graders, you know, and I would have them on one basket for my practice. Um, and so I remember counting, uh, how many passes players actually completed during the three man weave drill. Cause we had, we had almost 60 girls in the gym, I believe. Um, cause we had a sixth grade team, a seventh grade team and an eighth grade team. Uh, so maybe closer to 45 girls, um, in the gym. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there's three people, they went down and back. So there's three people going at a time while, 40 some odd people are standing watching these three girls go and on every trip down and back they were completing an average of three to four passes you know so if it took 10-15 seconds to go through that means you know there were let's say 12 groups so you're you're only going every three to four minutes to begin with and then once you go you're only completing three or four passes so you're making you know in that 10 minute session you might have made you know 12 passes yeah. Uh, you know, not, and, and we're calling that passing practice, you know, 12 undefended practice uh, passes to a player who's running to a spot where we know exactly where they're running, because that's what the drill tells her to do. Uh, and that's what we're calling our passing practice. And then we go to our game tomorrow and we commit a bunch of turnovers and the coach is off, oh, but we practiced passing yesterday. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, you know, I mean, three man weave to me is an easy one to pick on. Um, you know, because I think I think once it's explained in that way, people start to understand the idea of what I'm what I'm talking about. You know, both. So oh, quick question, um, quick question on that. Yeah. So I think I read I, I read I don't know an article you wrote about this recently, and you talked about um, the fact that from a coordination perspective, sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world to just practice running and throwing and catching at the same time. When right. About. Um, you know, I mean, it'd be ideal if the court was like four times longer, maybe you'd get, you know, four times more passes or something. But, but as right. far as just pure coordination, when you're not talking about decision making, um, do you find some benefit in it? And I'm not trying to like advocate for three man weave as much as I'm trying to find that crossover because in lacrosse, um, I agree this wholeheartedly with decision making is the whole game. However, there is an element of throwing and catching on the run that, that requires skill. Right. And I wanted to get your opinion. Yeah, no, I- Sure, I understand that. And and if, if I need to practice something like that, I don't do a three-man weave. I just do like a two-person partner drill, mm-hmm. uh, similar to the one that Kelly Graves tweeted out last week that drew a lot of controversy. Um, but, uh, you know, so just so that we can have more people going. And, 
And sure. so, you know, there's, we use, you know, like a third of the court or a half of the court, you know, from a width standpoint. And so once, once the first group passes the free throw line, the next group goes and the next group goes, and the next group goes. And then we're just going in a circle basically. So we go up on one side and then come back on the other side. Um, so that rest. way you're scaling your rest. Yeah. That, yeah, so basically nobody's standing in line waiting. You know, once once uh, the last group uh, has gone, you know, typically let's say I have 12 players on my team, we can really have six groups going at once, three kind of on one side and three on the other side. Or maybe they're, you know, there's a little bit, you know, one group just ended and they're walking over to start again. You know, so there's really only four groups technically on the court, but uh, nobody's really standing in line. It's a matter of just walking to the other side to go back the other way. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the way. Like if if that is something that I worry about, uh, you know, just the passing and catching aspect, then yeah, I would do it as a two person, just just to get more reps and to get um, less people standing around. I mean, that was that was the biggest thing. And then the other way that I do it, um, you know, like uh, with that same team, um, when I got my seventh graders, I put them into an advantage passing game, which you know more or less is like rondos that are used in soccer. Um, you know, and, and so then we'd have whatever I have, let's say I have 12 girls, we've got, uh, you know, five on five with two people that are all all time offense. And now in the span of three to four minutes, we were completing hundred, 120 passes, you know, so divide that by 12. So now, you know, in, in half the time we're completing the same amount of passes, uh, and all those passes have an element of defense. Most of them end up being uncontested passes. You just have to, because there's a two-person advantage. So theoretically, there's always somebody open. Um, so you just have to find the open passing lane. So, you, so instead of just throwing it to a person running to a spot that you know where they're going to be, you have to look a little bit, and then you have an open pass. So, you know, and then the other thing, like... Can you describe uh, that to me one more time, Brian? I didn't quite follow you. Oh, I'm sorry. So, you know, I pick, pick whatever, like, let's say inside the three-point line. Yeah. Uh, put five five players in black, five players in white, and then two players in a red penny. And okay. so those two players, two players in red are always on offense. So the offensive team always has seven players. The defensive team always have five players. Uh, and then we just pass. Every time there's a turnover, anytime the ball goes out of bounds, the defense gets the ball. So if black starts with the ball, they turn it over. Uh, you know, now it's white ball. But whoever's on offense can always pass to the red. So there's always seven offensive players. So there's always somebody open, you know, five people shouldn't be able to cover seven, essentially. And so you're getting um, up and down passing because you're going full court with this and you're getting all of the same kind of running, throwing, catching, but you got decision making getting up and down. Yeah, I mean, we just, we keep it to like a half court. So oh, it's do. a little bit more of a, yeah, it's a little bit less of a um, passing on the run. Yeah. Um, but it is catching on the run, hopefully, if we're doing it right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we take away the dribble, so they have to, you know, uh, within the basketball rules, they have to be able to catch and stop, um, you know, because I think that's where a lot of, um, especially the younger ages, that a lot of travels happen with the inability to catch the ball and stop, um, yeah. you know, at the same time without traveling or without having to dribble. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's a slightly different game, um, slightly different emphasis. Um, like I said, if I'm if I'm just, you know, like you're talking about, just trying to get the you know, passing and, and catching on the run, um, especially something like lacrosse where you don't have to stop when you catch the ball, um, you know, then I do like the two on, two on O, you know, up and down the court. 
But yeah. if I'm trying to to incorporate, you know, the beginnings of decision making with passing to a moving target, um, you know, I'm doing more like advantage passing, or I even do a simpler drill that I call Long Island passing because I got it from um, uh, the Long Island University men's soccer coach. I believe he's still there, TJ uh, Koselny. Um, uh, and basically, uh, it's we try to use as many balls as possible. But same thing, just two teams, a black and a white team, and it's actually one of the drills that works the more players there are. And you just put them in a small space, and they're running around amongst each other. And they're not even playing defense. Um, the goal is just to complete as many, you know, we put a target, let's say 100, and the goal is just to complete 100 passes without having, uh, you know, a turnover. Um, and so, you know, the black team's not guarding the white team. It's just they're all in the same space, and they're kind of getting in each other's way. And, you know, if I'm throwing a pass to you, uh, I have to be aware of, you know, there might be, uh, you know, white players running in between us because, you know, he's cutting to get the ball from somebody on his team. Uh, and so, you know, I can't just throw the ball and hit that person on the side of the head. So yeah. it's, it's not even playing catch with defense. Um, to me, it's a form passing drill. I'm just working on my basic passing and catching. Um, but uh, I have to have a little bit of awareness because I don't want to hit somebody in the side of the head. Um, and then, you know, especially once I get, you know, 12 or more players, it's hard to do two balls per team when there's only like eight or 10 players. Um, but if you have 12 or more, um, then we start putting in two balls per team, three balls per team, stuff like that. Um, and that's when it gets pretty fun because um, you're passing one ball and then immediately having to look in the other direction because, you know, somebody else is trying to pass you the ball from another direction. Um, and then we, this year, we, we put it in where you weren't allowed to stop on the catch. So, you know, you couldn't travel. Um, but when you caught the ball, basically, you had two steps to make uh, the pass to somebody else and you couldn't stop moving, um, you know, passers and catchers. And, and once you passed, everybody had to be in movement. And if I caught somebody standing still, then we had to get on the line. Um, you know, and do push-ups or run or something um, just to just to keep them moving um, and stuff like that, just to, to quicken how uh, the pace of their passing, you know. So there was, uh, you know, a, great, a greater challenge than being able to catch the ball, jump stop, look, 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 okay, you're open, okay, I'm going to pass you the ball. Now as I caught the ball, I stepped down, okay, I have one more step and I've got to get rid of the ball. Yeah, which means you're going to have to. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, and you're going to have to know what you're going to do with the ball before you get it. Um, and so the whole right. idea here, though, is, is, is really understanding the value of decision-making and that most, as it relates to fun, fake fundamentals and three-man weave, it's not to say it's not good for conditioning or that running and throwing and catching without a de defender out is, is always bad. It's more that at the end of the day, like you said, bad passes are because you were late, because you didn't see it, because you didn't see the defender. We're on the same page with what you're reading, and that's the whole game. And so scaling those decision-making reps um, are, is basically something that um, is incredibly important and in, in really in both sports. Right. And I think, I mean, I guess the, the impetus behind writing fake fundamentals was just, uh, you know, an attempt to make people just think about what they're doing, you know, because there's – there's so many things that are so ingrained in the way that we teach games, you know, and obviously I'm just speaking about basketball, but I'm sure lacrosse has some of the same things that, you know, you do them without thinking. 
you know, if, you know, of course, of course you would do three man weave and of course it helps passing you're passing the ball, you know, I mean, it's obvious, right? right. Um, but if you actually think about it and, and think about, you know, and, and if you like, same thing, like if you, if you tell me, well, look, my girls really can't catch the ball on the move and pass on the move. So we have to do the three man weave because that's where our turnovers happen. Then you know what, if that's the best drill that you can find to, to attack that mistake, you know, then yeah, by all means do it. But again, uh, you know, that, that to me works with younger players. I, you know, I think, uh, you know, obviously I think catching a ball in lacrosse is, is, uh, you know, more complex skill than catching a basketball in basketball. So, uh, you know, that might, that may take longer to master in lacrosse and, and a drill like a three man weave or something like that, you know, might be more warranted at, at older and older ages. Um, but I just think in, in basketball, uh, you know, once you're beyond the beginner level, um, the need for drills like three man weave from a passing standpoint, it, you know, is minimal at best. Um, you know, but, you know, I'm sure there are teams out there that, you know, you get somewhat inexperienced, even at the freshman level of high school, and maybe, maybe it's important. But um, the bigger thing is to know why you're doing what you're doing and not just do something because that's what your coach did or because you saw a coach at a clinic. I mean, that's the thing that kills me is every time I go to like the NCAA final four, the women's final four, and uh, you know, they, they have coaches out there doing clinics, you know, and I saw it with some of the um, USA basketball clinics this spring and stuff like that. Every coach starts their clinic with a three man week. And I'm like, seriously, like you have coaches, you have high school, you have youth coaches coming to watch a college coach give an hour clinic. <laughs> and we're all going to start with a three-man weave. Like, there's nothing else that we can come up with to teach coaches. Like, like they've never heard of a three-man weave. You know, that's that's what that's what these coaches. You know, and even I mean, at the Final Four, most of the coaches are other college coaches. It's like, so so I'm a college coach. I'm going to watch a Division One college coach give a clinic, and I want to watch you set up a three-man weave. I mean, come on. Like, that's just to me, that's just lazy. Yeah. You know, if nothing else, like. Yeah. Like, great. I mean, if, if you do it with your team, if this is what you do for conditioning, you know, great. But if that's what you're going to do at a clinic, like, that's just lazy. <laughs> the Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Hey, talk to me about uh, the concept of uh, what, what blocked a blocked practice or a blocked drill is. Um, you have a terminology that I, I learned from you. I don't know if you made it up or whatever, but um, as it relates uh, to blocked versus decision. Sure. So uh, the basic idea between block practice is uh, it's, it's a term for motor motor learning um uh and i don't know who originally came up honestly with with the term i know i know i probably was exposed to it through my motor learning textbooks so from richard smith or um uh, uh who's the other guy whose name just slipped my mind um so uh probably richard smith um uh, who was a professor at ucla for years um uh or mcgill or one of the other motor learning textbooks that i had uh in college but um, just the idea that in a block practice, I'm basically doing one thing. Um, so, and 
usually I'm, I'm doing one skill. So I, I'm going to do a block of shooting practice. Then I'm going to do a block of passing practice. Then I'm going to do a block of dribbling practice. Then I'm going to do a block of defense practice. Um, and then at the end of that, and at the end of that, then I'm going to scrimmage for five minutes and send my kids home. I mean, that's, that's a lot of youth practices right there. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I do, I come out, we do, you know, 10 minutes of layups. We do 10 minutes of shooting. We do 10 minutes of dribbling. We do 10 minutes of, uh, you know, defense. And then we do 10 minutes of scrimmaging. And in between there, we have water breaks. And that basically takes my hour of practice. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, and then with, within block practice, you can um, uh, bring it down even uh, a little bit more specific. So constant block practice would be if I'm doing within that one skill, I'm doing the same skill every time. So if I'm doing, you know, a typical like pregame layup drill where I'm coming in and I'm only shooting, uh, um, you know, right-handed, uh, you know, jump off my left foot, shoot with my right-hand layups, and that's yeah. all I'm doing. You yeah. know, that's constant block practice. Um, as opposed to I could be working on layups, but, you know, one time I shoot, you know, a traditional layup, and the next time I shoot a goofy foot layup or, you know, I jump off the same leg that I'm shooting with. The next time I shoot a reverse layup, mm-hmm. you know, then I do an up and under. So I'm doing different – I'm doing the same thing, layups, but I'm doing different versions of that um, would be variable practice. So as opposed to constant practice. Um, and then if, if I'm mixing in different skills, um, you know, so if I'm, you know, mixing in passing and shooting at the same time, dribbling, stuff like that all together, um, you know, that'd be more random variable practice. I'm never, you know, a lot of the shooting drills that we do um, because we have a, you know, either we're moving or because we have a defensive player in there. Uh, you know, we never shoot from the same spot at the same time. When we do layup drills, you know, we're always, you know, I want you to do a different finish every time you do a layup um, and stuff like that. So we're, we're trying not to do the same thing every single time in a row. Um, so that's the basic idea. And so um, the theories go that, that random and variable practice will uh, transfer better to games, um, better than block practice or constant practice, um, which to me seems – uh, you know, somewhat self-evident because that's how games are played. You know, in, in a game, I never get the chance to shoot, you know, 10 exact same layups in a row. You know, I shoot a layup and I go play defense. I pass the ball, I cut, I move, I get the ball back. You know, now maybe I shoot a layup on the other side of the court. Um, you know, and so I think to me, you know, I, I imagine that's the major reason why the transfer is better because it's more, uh, more akin to a game, even if it is, even if there, you take all the decision-making out of the drill, you know, and I'm just doing an uncontested layup drill. But, you know, I mean, and this is, tends to be one of my arguments about free throw shooting and free throw shooting practice uh, is most, most teams, you know, you, you shoot free throws, you know, and, you know, you, you make 10 free throws in a row or you, you shoot 100 free throws and see how many you made or whatever. And if you're just shooting free throws and nothing else, that's constant block practice. You know, I'm doing one skill shooting and I'm doing it from one spot, 15 feet um, over and over. And so then, so players make 80, 90 free throws out of a hundred and then they only make 60% in a game. And people think that they have, you know, a mental problem. And to me, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's practice design. You never get to shoot a hundred free throws in a row during a game. You shoot one or two free throws 
and then you run around and then maybe 10 minutes later you shoot another free throw um and uh chris ballard's book chris ballard um writes for sports illustrated or at least he used to i don't even know anymore um and he wrote a book years ago um about um you know kind of basketball trainers and and kind of the the side of basketball that people rarely see and stuff like that and one of the guys you wrote about was chip england who's the um, shooting coach who's semi-famous from the san antonio spurs and so england was was talking about how uh he worked with steve kerr um you know now the warriors coach then one of the best shooters in the nba and he was talking about how you know because kerr would come off the bench and sometimes he'd come off the bench and popovich would put him in a game you know and run a play for him you know on the the you know he's coming straight off the bench to, to shoot the ball you know and so england talked about how you know, in their workouts, they might work out for a half hour and only take seven or eight shots because they would, you know, sit down on the, on the bench, just like, you know, in a, just like Kerr did in the game because he came off the bench. And then all of a sudden, you know, England would yell at go or something, whatever, whatever their cue was. And Kerr would have to run to the other end of the court. England would dribble up and pass him the ball and Kerr would take one shot and then they'd go sit down again. <laughs> um, and so they, they, he talked about it a little bit from like a pressure standpoint, you know, being able to just, you know, you have one shot to make and you've got to make that one shot. And so, you know, you can never get the full game pressure and game environment in a practice setting. It's always going to be fall short, but that type of practice, he was getting as close as he could to what Kerr actually did in the game. And so, like I said, a lot of people looked at it from a pressure standpoint and stuff, but really it's a practice design. He's saying, okay, this is what Kerr does in a game. You know, he shoots once and he shoots cold and, you know, he might shoot once every 10 minutes of, you know, game time or even real time, you know, so that's what we're going to do. We're not going to go and shoot a hundred shots in a row because once Kerr warms up, he's going to make 50, 60, 70 shots in a row. But can he make that one shot at that one time? That's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically it's a different skill. And I've made this argument because there's a big thing in basketball and basketball trainers and shooting coaches and stuff, and they talk about game slippage, you know. And so guys shoot 80 90% in practice, and then they shoot 40% during games, and their coaches call it game slippage. Well, yeah, that's just what happens in games. And, and my argument is, yeah, it's because you're not practicing the same thing. Right. Like it looks the same. And to a certain extent, this is basically fake fundamentals, right? It looks the same. I'm shooting three pointers. I, you know, I take a lot of shots at the top of the key. So I'm going to shoot and practice a lot of shots at the top of the key. And if I get more reps and more reps and more reps, I'm going to be better at it. Well, I'm going to be better at it in practice because I'm doing it over and over and over again. And essentially every time it's like a warm up, right? If, if you have a choice of going in and, shooting one shot for a thousand dollars or if you have a a choice of going in and warming up and then shooting one shot for a thousand dollars everybody's going to choose to warm up nobody's going to go in i mean that's why that's why you know companies feel comfortable giving away money for half court shots when they know that the the person only gets one attempt right because you're taking somebody out of the stands to come and make a half court shot with no warm-up no practice anything like the chances that they make that are very slim now, if you give somebody 10 or 15 shots to warm up and then give them that shot, their chances of them making it go up, you know, are much greater, you know, even though, you know, obviously for a half-court shot, the chance, the actual percentages are very low. 
but you take, you know, a 1% shot and you make it a 3% shot, or you take a 3% shot and make it a 10% shot, you know, uh, and in, in terms of insurance for that $50,000 or that free car or whatever somebody's work, you know, winning, like the difference between 1% and 3%, you know, is huge. The difference between 3% and 10% is huge. Um, you know, the same thing in games, like, you know, I basically made the argument that if, if you shoot 80% in practice and you shoot 40% in games, you're not practicing the same thing. Or you're telling me that the practice is ineffective because you're shooting half as well. Like there's, you can't just say, oh, well, the game. Yeah, that means you're not practicing what happens in the game. The game isn't about specific spots. It's not about, well, I shoot from the corner I shoot corner three, so I'm only going to practice corner three, so my practice is specific. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, are you shooting with defense? And to me, the big thing that affects shooting that nobody really practices, the decision to shoot. I really believe the decision to shoot affects shooting percentages um, because most, most drills, you're told, okay, you're the shooter, you're the passer, I'm the rebounder. Okay, I'm going to pass the ball to the passer, passer passes to you, you shoot the ball. So you don't have to decide. You know every single time I catch the ball, I shoot it. Whereas in a game, every time you shoot the ball, you're making a choice. And that choice is, one, this is a good shot for me. This is a good shot for my team. Nobody else has a better shot. You know, things like this. And if, and if I start to shoot the ball and out of the corner of my eye, I see a cutter to the basket, I have that moment of doubt of whether I should shoot or whether I should pass to my teammate, you know? And that moment of doubt 100% affects whether or not I make that shot. I still might make that shot, yeah. you know, especially if I'm a great, if I'm, a, if, you know, if I'm Steph Curry, I may make that shot, you know, but if I do that every single time I shoot, I'm going to shoot a lower percentage than when I'm in a gym by myself and I don't have to think about these things. No doubt. Um, and this so, is like the whole, the whole so, concept of all the, all the blocks practices where you end up sort of, you know, and, and, and you, you take out the decision-making and you're practicing skills and you get really good at these drills. Um, and then when you wonder why they don't translate, you know, this, this is exactly it, um, which leads me into um, a really interesting concept. So I, I spent, um, um, you know, a whole career studying lacrosse and figuring out what the best players in the world do, figuring out what, what the skill is and then trying to figure out how to teach it. And what I found is it's, it's really not that hard. It takes time, but it's not that hard to teach everybody everything. The hard part is getting people to actually remember to use the skills in games. And when you script it out and you say, okay, we're going to do, you know, this drill, you know, even if there is defense out there and you're going to say, okay, we're going to do a three on two pass down, pick down. I want you to use this, you know, your double threat. I want you to use, you know, look back fakes, wind up, step into the gap, you know, use your behind, you know, all these various fake faking might be the best example that I can use uh, as it relates to all this. But the point is, is that when you get into games, people stop using their skills. They, they know how to do so many things that they never think of or have the confidence or the recognition to actually do in a game. And I believe it's because of all of these drills and the private lessons and really the lack of free play and pickup games, which I actually believe um, is the, the most potent way to develop your game. And just wanted to see if you could t talk a little bit about that and specifically just a little bit about deception and faking. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I agree about the free play and the pickup games, definitely. Uh, you know, I mean, that's why I tend to coach how I coach, you know, to, to in some ways uh, make up for the lack of uh, free play and, and uh, um, pickup games, uh, you know, and players today. But, um, yeah, I remember, you know, this is somewhat related. I remember years ago I was working with this girl when I used to do a lot of individual training, and I was working with this girl – you know, and she was great during, during workouts. She was a post player. She's great during workouts. Um, you know, but then she got in a game and she never used the moves, you know, like you're saying. And so I, uh, I told her mom, I was like, look, I'm not going to work individually with her anymore. I'm like, you need to find, you know, another player for her to work with. Yeah. You know, like, and she's like, no, no, she needs more. She needs more individual tension. She needs more moves. I'm like, no, she doesn't need any more moves. I was like, she doesn't use any of the moves that she has during games. Her problem isn't the lack of moves. Her problem is reading the defense and knowing which move to use at which time. I was yeah. like, she needs fewer moves. You know, she doesn't need 12 different moves. She needs one move in each direction and then a counter to that move. You know, so essentially four different moves. You know, and then the important part is she needs to know when to use them. And I can't teach her when to use them uh, without a defensive player, uh, you know, here. You know, I mean, I can I can tell her verbally, okay, when the defensive player is here and this defensive player does that, then you do this. But that's not the same thing as her feeling a defensive player and recognizing and making the choice herself, you know. And so, so I told her, I was like, look, you know, I mean, you don't have to do this. You know, you can, I mean, they're, she's a pretty good eighth grade player. I'm sure there's a lot of trainers out here that are, that will work with her and, and try to, and, you know, because the, they, you know, she's got a good foundation. She's got good size. She's probably got a chance to play in college. So, you know, that can help a, help a trainer, you know, make his name, you know, by working with her, you know, but I'm just telling you, she's not going to get any better unless she works with defense. You know, that's just what I'm seeing. You know, she, in, a, in, a, in a gym by herself, she can do a dozen moves with speed, without traveling, et cetera. She gets in a game and she's deer with headlights. And, and so, you know, doing more individual practice is not going to solve her problem. And so she decided to take her daughter and work with somebody else where she could do individual training. And, and she never really became, she know, I don't even know if she ever ended up playing varsity basketball, but I know she never played in college. Yeah. Um, and that may or may not have anything to do with, uh, you yeah. know, the practice. Sure. You know, there's a thousand different things that go on into a girl progressing from eighth grade to college, um, you know, and I and I lost track of her by her junior year, um, sure. so I don't know what was going on. But but you know, I mean, that's the way that people think is no, I need more individual practice. I need, but then they get in games and they don't do it. And you know, I saw around the same time, you know, I saw another player that I was working with, kind of the same thing. He didn't, he wasn't transferring his workouts into games, and so the players are the you know, people around him start blaming his high school coach. Oh, well, the high school coach isn't playing him right. He needs to do this. And if he got the ball here and if he did this, you know, and other people who knew the player well, oh, you know, he's just soft mentally. He's just, you know, he's just, you know, he's not tough enough. If he was just tougher, then he could use the skills better in games and, and stuff like that. Nobody ever questioned the fact that most of the time he's working out in a gym by himself, uh, you know, and he was, you know, we were working individually and he was never going against defense. You know, like nobody ever criticized that. And that's one that he specifically is kind of the player who most changed how I coach. Um, and, and is really the reason why I don't do individual training anymore. Um, Cause I saw that. I was like, everybody was willing to, to blame 
everybody around him, including him, and nobody ever blames me and my individual workouts with him. Because when he was with me in a gym by himself, he was making every shot, you know, and then he went in games and he couldn't do anything. And so it obviously wasn't my fault. He made shots with me. It was the coach's fault. It was his fault. It was, you know, his teammates' fault for not passing him the ball on the right. You know, it was everybody else's fault. And nobody ever looked at my training or my practice because obviously he was making shots with me. So it couldn't be, be my fault. Right. And so that's, that's why I stopped doing individual training was, was that player and that reason. Like, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, we're blaming a high school coach for a boy not being able to make shots. Like, he's getting shots. He's just not making them, you know. And, yeah. yes, he makes them by himself. But, you know, the problem is, in retrospect, you know, he's, he's having to make that choice in games. He's having to shoot against defense. He's having to go a little bit quicker. Even if you yell game speed over and over and over at a player, in practice is different than having a defender there who forces them to go faster. The Phil Lacrosse podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy. So, Brian, in the sport of basketball, you know, you think of pickup games as obvious and automatic in that, you know, I mean, I, I played a lot of basketball in my life, very little organized basketball, but I played a ton. I was in an athletic department, you know, like you, you probably played lunchtime hoops. I played, I played for 15, 20 years. Um, and I got good at basketball, uh, maybe not so much if there was a ref around, but, but I understood how to play. And um, it seems like basketball is the obvious, and soccer, I guess, would be the two sports that are the easiest to play. In the sport of lacrosse, there, are, there, there aren't a lot of pickup games. The, the, Iroquois, right. the Iroquois play pickup games more than anybody, and it's their, it's their game. It's the creator's game. It's the game they invented. And they literally play backyard lacrosse. And I'm telling you, Brian, these guys have a skill set that is greater per capita. They put out more world-class players per capita than any population. There's only about 1,500 Iroquois lacrosse players. And yet, every time you turn around off these reservations that might have 120 on the Onondaga reservation, and all of a sudden, you've got, like, all-time great first ballot Hall of Fame players, and they didn't have individual lessons. They didn't. They really didn't have much coaching. They played box lacrosse, which is an indoor version of the game, and they played backyard lacrosse. But I read in I read a tweet from you recently about how you know coaches kind of have turned on the pickup game. Uh, to me, the pickup game is where you learn how to use all your skills. You learn how to go against somebody. You, you learn how to use counters because they learn your game, and you learn how to be tough. You learn how to compete. You learn how to be a leader or a follower. Um, and um, talk a little bit about what has happened in basketball with pickup games from a sort of evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, uh, you know, societal. I, you know, I think basketball, you know, is the same as, you know, a lot of things, uh, you know, where for whatever reason, you know, I mean, I remember uh, when I first started individual training, um, uh, back when I was in college, I was working with a girl in, in Los Angeles and, and down in Palisades. And it was the first time I heard, she, 
she was she was her mom was like yeah well i'm gonna drop off uh her to you and then i have to take my other daughter to a play date and i was like what is a play date you know and and it was basically you know parents arranging for their five-year-olds to play together you know instead of just having friends and saying hey mom can you know sam come over today you know uh you know they they plan their play date you know a week or two weeks in advance um you know i and i i just think like uh you know everything has kind of gone that way everything's more scheduled um you know whereas you know pickup games you know i mean i know as adults uh you know whenever i go back to sacramento i know where there's a scheduled pickup game amongst guys who i kind of know you know because one of my good friends plays there you know like every sunday morning 10 a.m you know i know the gym i know where they play you know it's they rent it because because you know we're older everybody's pretty much a professional we can afford to rent a gym at a specific time and and you know play basketball um you know but but you know for most people uh you know pickup games tended to be somewhat you know organic you showed up at a court and then some other guys showed up at a court and pretty soon there's 10 and now you're playing a game uh and now i just think with the the world being so over scheduled like that just doesn't happen as much and then there's you know parents you know increasingly are are you know scared to let their children out of their sight and so on and so forth i mean i remember when i was in high school i would i would you know and i was in high school before we ever had cell phones you know so my parents you know from the time i left in school until i got home at night my parents had no idea where i was you know and i never you know i and i would i would get out of school at 2 30 you know and i wouldn't get home till five o'clock uh you know and i would stop and play you know i my friend i would I drove my friend to school a lot because um, I had a car and he didn't. Uh, and so, you know, I'd drive him home and we'd stop and we'd play for an hour or two at, at you know, a nearby uh, court. And then I'd finally go home, you know. And now, you know, even with cell phones where you could say, hey, mom, I'm here, uh, you know, it's just, it just doesn't happen as much, um, you know. And I don't know if it's, just a basketball thing but i think it's more of a uh, society thing yeah um, but then i also think there is the basketball part of it where for whatever reason around the time that i wrote crossover which is my first book which people thought i wrote it because the u.s lost in the 2004 world championships which had nothing to do with my my book had nothing to do with um you know like elite level competition because if you know i mean if the u.s had sent their best team in 2004 they would have won you know, it was just a matter of the best players didn't go. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, my my reaction was to what I was seeing, and 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 stuff. And and it since over the you know the last 20 years, you know, everybody complains. Well, fundamentals aren't this. You know, players can't do this. Europeans can do this. Basketball can't do this. You know, players lack this. And every time I talk to a to a coach who says this, you know, a coach, let's say 45 years or older, every time I talk to them and they, they complain about oh, players today, they're just not as fundamental. Nobody can shoot. They just, they don't make decisions, blah, blah, blah. They're like, they need more, they need more individual training. I'm like, well, did you do individual training when you were playing when you were 15? Oh no, I played pickup games. I did this. You know, I was always at the park playing games with older guys. I'm like, so how have we come, that we have a generation of adults who grew up playing pickup and our answer 
to the supposed lack of fundamentals that these players who aren't playing pickup is that they need more specialized training. Yeah. And that's what I see is, you know, we're basically saying, okay, kids don't play pickup enough anymore. So they lack these skills. So let's get further and further from the game and put them in a gym by themselves with a coach yelling at them on every rep. And yeah. that's how we're going to make up for whatever, per, you know, they lack because they didn't grow up playing pickup games or whatever the case may be. And so to me, that's like the exact opposite. It's like, um, and I, you know, I mean, I understand where there's room for, you know, individual training, sure. um, you know, to make specific corrections, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just don't see how individual training is how we, what we've all come up with as a society should be how we replace pickup games uh, because apparently we can't do anything to, encourage children to play pickup games so we're just all going to give up and say nope well there's no more pickup games so let's just do more individual training uh let's dribble around some more cones um and let's make sure we play against defense as little as possible and that's how we're going to make up for skill deficiencies you know what's so um, interesting so, brian is that people a lot of people cannot wrap their head around the fact that you can learn things without being taught them and I think that's, oh, yeah, exactly. that's the magic of pickup that people can't understand. They're like, well, what do you mean? I'll say like, you know, on Twitter, I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, pickup games are the solution. And they'll be like, well, how can you play a pickup game if you, if you don't know how to, you know, pass and catch and shoot? It's like, because you'll figure it out. I mean, it's like, honestly, yeah. there's so much learning that occurs. And it's learning is the key. It's not so much teaching. Yeah. And then, then everybody has this idea that as soon as you play – you know a pickup game all you're going to develop is bad habits you know and yeah. and so and then you know your serious fundamental coach is going to have to break you of all these bad habits i'm like yeah but you complain about the same bad habits from players who have never played a pickup game so it's not really pickup fault you know i mean now all you know all the traditionalist type coaches are complaining about all the trainers and all the trainers are doing you know they're, you know, 12 dribble moves. It's like, well, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you complained about it was pickup games is why, you know, kids dribble too much. Now we complain that the trainers who have replaced the pickup games is why we dribble too much. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it's just, it's, to me, it's just people finding reasons to complain about things and, you know, pickup games, uh, I think, you know, same with AAU, they, they become an easy target, um, you know, and, you know, that there are probably other societal reasons and, uh, you know, probably stereotypical reasons that are involved in, in why many people look at um, pickup games negatively. Um, but I also think people look at the one negative that comes out of something and, you know, stick to that instead of looking at the, you know, five to 10 to 20 to 100 potential positives that can come from something, uh, you know, totally outweighing the one potential negative. Um, I mean, there's no question that, like, you know, um, that ball movement, for example, is something that, you know, you might not see in your typical pickup game because people dribble the ball more or whatever. Um, But but like you said, I mean, the element of physicality, the element of, you know, battling somebody, the element of he's doing this, so I'm going to do that. The element of knowing who your best player is, the element of just, you know, competing, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty remarkable. Um, 
And it kind of brings me on to the concept of, of you know, your small-sided games that you use in practice. Because obviously, um, as a coach, you know, I, I just hope my players would play pickup. And then when they came to practice, I want to try to create environments that will create the a, a scenario that they have to respond to. So let's just say, you know, it's like your drill where you said there's, you know, you're not allowed to dribble. So therefore you have to pass more. And, and these are the ways that in practice you can create environments. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the things, um, you know, do you do sometimes, you know, I've seen people do uh, play one-on-one -on -one basketball where there's like a one or two dribble rule. I mean, that, to me, that's just an awesome way to learn how to, how to get a shot off with, without being able to just dribble back your way in for an hour and a half. Um, what are some other little environments that you create in the various drills, game, game-like drills that you uh, like to use in basketball practices? Um, well, I have some specific ones that I use and then, but a lot of the ones I use uh, kind of come about, you know, during practice based on what I'm seeing. Uh, but some of the traditional ones, um, I have a drill that I call Canada basketball because I got it from a guy named Mike McKay, who's the, um, I forgot his title. I think he's the technical director for Canada basketball or, he has yeah. a title like that, but he's one of the, he's one of the smartest minds in, in basketball, I think. Um, and so basically we set up four cones and divide the court into six rectangles and we play four on four. Um, and you can't be in the same box uh, or the same rectangle as somebody else on your team. Uh, and so just use it as a basic guide to spacing. So it's something I, I usually use at the beginning of the year a lot and then kind of phase it out as the year goes along. Um, but it's something that I can always refer back to, you know, let's say, you know, we're getting in each other's way or, you know, I look up and we've got four people on one side of the court, you know, on a possession and it's, you know, there's just nothing positive going on. I can be like, look, you know, just think of the boxes, just think of the boxes, you know, because I call it candidate rules, but almost everybody that I coach ends up calling it the boxes game, um, you know, so. Uh, you know, just think about the boxes, you know, where should, what should you do, you know, in this situation, what, what needs to happen? Um, and so that's, that's a pretty basic game that I, that I use for a specific purpose. I love uh, you know, I do, you know, like, like you said, I sometimes will play one-on-one, we'll limit the dribbles. This summer we've been, um, uh, cause I had, had, a uh, for much of the summer I had kind of a point guard, a wing and a post player and the post player was trying to become a wing. Uh, but if whenever she kind of turned her back, it, you know, she could, she could create a shot over the smaller girls. Um, so we, we started playing, uh, one-on-one -on -one where as soon as you got inside the three point line, you had to keep going forward. Like you could change directions, but you couldn't go backwards and you couldn't turn your back. Yeah. Um, you know, so just working on attacking and trying to attack with more speed as opposed to relying on, you know, spin moves and, and step backs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, we played, you know, we, we played one-on-one. -on -one. Conversely, we played one-on-one -on -one where you couldn't score inside the key. Um, so, you know, encouraged a little bit more defensive pressure and the offense had to work on creating space to create a jump shot. Um, you know, so just, I mean, it just kind of depends on, on who I'm working with at the time. Sure. You know, I mean, we do other games to try to, like, uh, you know, one of the passes that I don't like is, is if we have a player running away from the basket uh, and, and, you know, outside the key. I don't really want to pass them the ball, especially along the baseline, because um, there's nothing really for them to do with the ball. 
so we play we play a game that works on spacing and, and also gets rid of that pass. I call wildcat rules. I've played it for years. Um, three on three, we're basically uh, when you receive a pass, you either have to be on a direct cut to the basket where you can catch and score uh, without a dribble, or you have to catch the ball outside the three-point line. Um, you know, so it's it's mainly working on, you know, drive and kick out, drive and kick out, but it's also getting the idea of, you know, if somebody's running away from the basket, we don't want to throw them the ball there. You know, wait till they get to the three-point line and they're facing the basket. Now we can kick the ball to them, but there's – they're not gonna. There's there's not a lot of positive plays that you're gonna make 18 feet from the basket facing away from the basket on the baseline. Right. Um, so we don't want to give you the ball there. So so we play a game to emphasize don't pass them the ball there. Um, you know. And so there's other things like that. Um, you know. I play games with the one second rule because I want players playing faster. So you know, on a catch, you got to either go to the basket, pass the ball, or shoot. Um, which a lot of people, oh, you know, now you're going to get bad shots. I'm like, yeah, the first time we play it, it's shit. You know, they suck. But that's the point. Like, that doesn't mean stop playing it. That means we need to do it more. Like, if they're really good at it, we we wouldn't have to do it. You know, it means we'd be a pretty good offensive team already, and we could work on other things. But, you know, I get players coming from high school that are used to, you know, catch, triple threat, hold the ball, wait, wait, okay, now there's a screen on the weak side, okay, wait way you know or they get the ball and they're used to being a point guard so they're used to taking you know 12 dribbles in place before they make the move you know and so we play one second and that get rid of those two things real quick yeah you know and 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 do we take bad shots yeah lots of them do we take bad shots in games yep you know but uh you know i mean that's just part of the way that we play and the way that we, that i coach is you know i'm not even worried about bad shots I just want to play faster and I just want to put more pressure on the defense. And if every time we catch, we're making something quick, the defense shouldn't have a chance to relax on an entire possession. And if we keep, uh, you know, taking those small advantages and extending them, we're going to get a good shot, um, which we typically do. Um, You know, so when we're starting out, we're terrible at it. You know, every group's terrible at it, but, you know, people tell me, Oh, you know, we did, we did the one second drill and they're terrible. So we had to stop it. It's like, why? Like, that's the point. Yeah. Like, right. you're doing something that they're not good at, so they're going to be bad at it. If you stop doing it, then they're never going to get better at that. You don't get better at playing faster by playing slower, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's the same thing when, when I do – when I'm working on ball handling with players. Like, I'm constantly faster, faster, faster. I want you to make this move without slowing down at all. They're like, oh, but I can't do it. I'm like, I know. That's why we're doing it. You can already do the move at slow motion, but that's not going to beat anybody. So you you have the choice. You can make mistakes now, or you can never beat somebody in a game. Like, you know, and I'm trying to get used to where you can beat somebody in a game, but if, if you're, you know, want to stay the same, then, you know, more power to you. But, you know, you're not going to get better. You know, like to get to, to improve that dribbling move, you've got to do it faster. You've got to do it, be comfortable with the defensive player closer to you when you make the move. You know, so you probably got to get a little bit lower. You've got to get a little bit tighter with your handle. And the way that you do that is by practicing making moves faster. And then by practicing making those moves in one-on-one games, um, you know, which is why we played the game where you can't uh, slow down or you can't, uh, you know, spin move or go backwards or anything so that they had to get to the defensive player and make a move to beat that player. And did they make a lot of turnovers? Yes. That's the point is 
we want them doing things that they can't that they haven't already mastered if we run an entire practice doing things that they've mastered they're not getting better you know and it makes it looks good and you know if somebody's watching on the sideline it looks like you know you're a professional coach and you're well organized and all this nonsense but nobody's getting better and if nobody's getting better like what's the point yeah so true The Philocrosophy Podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. There is no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. I got a question for you. Um... What's your uh, take on, on teaching a uh, two-man game and pick and roll? I mean, that's much of what we do. The first, I finally had six girls in the gym because my school starts next Monday, so girls are starting to come in this week. Yeah. Um, and so I think – so we had six yesterday. Uh, and I mean, the first thing we did was we warmed up with a shooting drill and then we played two-on-two um, with, a, with, you know, po post – a post group and a, and a guard group. So the guards were always rotating against each other and the posts are always rotating against each other. And we do that almost every practice. Um, you know, we're a, we're a heavy pick and roll team either from the beginning or uh, I like to run something to try to get a layup. And if we don't get the layup off of the action, then we're into a pick and roll and then we play from there. Um, that's, I mean, if I had to describe how, if how I had to describe our offense in one sentence, that's our offense. How do you how do you teach pick and roll as far as, you know, when you're when you're getting started with your with your with your team? Not not, not so much with like ten year olds right now, but let's just say you got high school kids or college kids kind of know how to play, but they don't really know how to play this two man game. Um how, what what do you how do you teach it? What are the, the fundamentals that you teach? Well, so um you know, there's two things. One, you know, to me, the a middle pick and roll and a side pick and roll are different. Okay. Um, so that's the first is, is how we want to do. Two, then the second thing is how we want to space around uh, the, the pick and roll. So if we're on the side, you know, are we going to have three out on the weak side? Are we going to have two out and one uh, yeah. kind of, you know, in the dunker spot? Um, mm -hmm. Are we going to have one in the corner on the ball side? Uh, behind the play and then two um, and so how we space out will uh, determine to an extent what lanes we have um, we we try to run on ball screens a little bit more how they teach it in the NBA I really don't I don't even want uh, my post players making contact with the defense um, you know more or less we're just trying to create that small advantage so if if the um, we want to set the screen low and encourage the defensive player to try to go over top of the screen. Yeah. Um, and so as soon as, as soon as that defensive player makes that decision that they're going over top of the screen, then we want, ideally we want our, our screener to run to the rim um, and use that to, to draw defense uh, towards her running to the rim. Or if nobody runs with her, then she should be open for a layup. Um, and then if the defense chooses to go under that screen, then we want to rescreen. So the, the post player is supposed to uh, basically just pivot. So the, the ball handler needs to go wide enough that the 
the screener doesn't get called for a moving screen, uh, but it should be an automatic rescreen. And it's pretty hard for a defense to go under two screens in a row. Yeah. Um, and if they if they go under that second one, um, we should be shooting we should be shooting a three off off the the dribbler should be shooting a three. Um, you know, like last year our guards were good enough shooters. We started setting screens pretty high, more like you'd see in the NBA than you typically see in, in high school or college. Um, and if, if they went underneath, um, you know, we were liable to pull it or we were definitely trying to rescreen. If they went under that second one, then it was definitely, a, we were definitely shooting a three off the dribble. Um, you know, most teams switched against us last year. Um, so, you know, then we have to go over, all right, what are we going to do? Who's our matchup? You know, I mean, that, that to me in a switch, um, you know, I always thought on ball screens when I was starting out that we wanted to force them to switch. Um, now switching is becoming the, the dominant mode of defense and it's what the defense wants to do. Um, but I still think you have an advantage on the offense. And so the, our guard just needs to decide who has the bigger advantage. Is it, is it the guard at the top of the key with a, with a post player? defending her or is it uh the post player with a guard you know on the inside uh last year most of the time was our guard um you know and she could she could get her shot off against most post players um and so she would attack um this year i'm thinking it might be a little bit different um but i also haven't seen my point guard here yet so we'll see yeah. so um you're thinking about but she's not as big you're thinking about the when they switch more about where my matchup advantage is, but do you ever try to take advantage of the moment when the ball, uh, the dribbler has both the switch and their own man kind of hung up there for a second when it's like, okay, well, they haven't switched yet. So you kind of engage your own defender and you keep them on you while you're engaging the switch with the threat of your dribble. And then all of a sudden there's two players that are sort of now zoning it up. And then when, when the, when the post player, when the picker exits, one of them is going to have to go with the, with that player. And then you attack that side. Do you ever think about that concept? Yeah. And um, I mean, that's, that's why we want the player running to the rim. So if two people stay with the, with the dribbler even for a second then hopefully we're getting the the picker running to the rim or if they draw help then we want to find the the player that they left uh and that's why um you know the the side pick and roll versus the middle pick and roll um opens up different um you know passing options and passing lanes and then also the spacing especially on a side pick and roll if you have nobody behind the ball that pass becomes a lot easier because uh, it doesn't have to be a great pass because there's really no threat because the help defense has to come from the opposite corner. Um, you know, so you should have uh, an easier pass. Um, and, you know, that's what, I mean, we, when we almost upset, like, I think they're like the number five team in the nation. We came from like 16 down and we did that the whole second half um, was just, uh, you know, a side pick and roll and we knew they were going to switch and it was just an automatic pass back. As soon as they started to switch, we just passed the ball back to the post. And um, if, if they were slow in the switch, then she was going to the rim. If they switched well and their guard defender got underneath her to take away that, 
then she just kind of backed her down um, and just ISO'd one on one. And you know, I mean, that's we came we came we came from down a lot. Um, and I think I'm. It was the one game that I don't have video tape. Our our camera broke right before the game, and the other team went. And the other team was depending on us to tape the game for them too. So we don't have any film of it. But <laughs> if I recall, the entire last seven minutes, I don't think we did anything but side on ball screen um, with with our one and our four, knowing that they were going to switch, and then just basically just isoing our four, um, you know, against a smaller player. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it just it depends on the team. It depends on the matchups. Uh, you know, last year our point guard was our strongest player, so uh, it was more or less allowing her to make the decisions. Um, you know, but this year, like last year, my point guard was big and she could shoot over any post player. Um, this year, I'm going to have a smaller point guard, so we're going to have to work a little bit more on turning the corner, you know, and really exploiting that advantage and then making that kick out to wherever the help comes from, you know, or whoever passing to whoever the help leaves. Um, you know, and, and playing off that advantage because um, I don't think our point guards are going to be able to shoot over. Uh, you know, if teams continue to switch, I don't think they're going to be able to shoot over the defense like we did last year. Um, so we're going to have to do some things a little bit differently and, and look to uh, attack that defender a little bit more. And this year our, our center probably is going to be a little bit more of an offensive player than our center was last year. So hopefully we can get more the ball to her off the screen uh, running to the rim a little bit earlier um, where she has the option of, uh, you know, continuing to the basket or if help comes making that next pass um, to an open shooter. How do you explain the use of hesitation moves and, and, um, and fakes um, as uh, effective in, in, in these switching two man situations? Um, to me, those are harder to teach because a lot of it is feel. Um, you know, like I said, with our point guard last year, I didn't really do it. I spent more time trying to get her not to hesitate and fake because that her natural cadence, I think, was, was a hesitation. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to explain, but that's just how she dribbled the ball, um, like, she just kind of dribbled the ball was a borderline carrying violation on almost every dribble. Mm -hmm. Um, So she, she just had that natural hesitation um, with her. So there, so most of what I did with her was trying to get her not to hesitate and just to explode more. Um, Whereas with other players then, you know, who are, you know, more straight line players, um, you know, then it, it becomes more of trying to teach them, you know, when to hesitate, when to, how to fake uh, and stuff like that. But to a large extent, we try to play off the catch where we don't need to fake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I see most players, well, not most, but I see a lot of players. And, you know, I saw it yesterday with, with a freshman who I saw for the first time yesterday. Every catch is an automatic jab step. Um, and, I, and I'm telling her, no, I'm like, yeah. Every time you catch the ball, you're a shooter. So every time you catch the ball, if you're open, you're shooting it. And if you're not opening it, you you either need to pass the ball right away to somebody who's more open, or you need to attack with the dribble. Like you're already open, you don't need a jab step. The jab step is if you were defending, but you caught the ball in space. Yeah. Therefore, you don't need. There's nobody to fake. The only reason you're faking is because you're waiting 
for the defense to get to you. You should already have attacked before the defender got there. So we try to take a lot of that out. More of our fakes are, uh, you know, things like the Euro step when we're getting to the rim yeah. um, or shopping on two feet and shot fake, um, you know, Looking or I mean, on, like when you're driving to the basket, you know, you make that decision to go, you know, to quickly take yeah. Quick, quick look to the left or the right to be able to buy yourself just that little bit of time to be able to lay it in and not get it blocked? Yeah, I would say with our team last year, we were, once we committed to the drive, we were, we were driving to score. Um, we didn't have as many players that kind of, uh, you know, had that kind of slowdown. I think, I, you know, I worked with one girl yesterday for the first time and she has a little bit of what you're saying naturally. Um, so. But it's um, to me, like I said, it's one of those things that's, that's hard to teach because I think a lot of it is feel. Yeah. Uh, you know, so goes uh, back to the pickup. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and and so I think that the players who have played more kind of have that feel. Um, the players who are, you know, like I've, you know, girls you can tell that are overcoached and overtrained. You know, it's hard. To get them to get that feel back um and so you know we work on it you know we we try to do things but you know to a certain extent at, at this level especially once we're you know i mean my goal is showcasing these girls to get division one scholarships um so part of it is as much as i'm trying to expand uh their game um, it's also trying to put them you know in situations and games where they're not going to make too many mistakes um, you know, it's kind of a, it's an interesting level in that respect for me because, because we're trying to improve, but we're also trying to, to showcase at the same time because uh, there's still another scholarship, uh, you know, out there that they need to get. Um, you know, so it can't it can't be completely uh, developmental. Um, you know, where we're we're okay making any mistakes just because we're we're just trying to get better, yeah. but. But to me, it's also we're we're certainly not a finished product where we're trying to minimize mistakes and and minimize you know not worried about development and and yeah. just perform, um, you know more like a four year school you know I think is a lot more focused on performance, um, you know so uh, you know I, I think it's junior college is an interesting level in that respect but you know it kind of depends on the player too you know I mean. Uh, some players need to uh, accept their role and know that they're going to get, you know, a scholarship by being a standstill shooter, not because they, they can dribble the ball. And some players, you know, they need to be able to dribble the ball. You know, and it just kind of depends on the player, um, you know, what we're doing with them. But, um, you know, getting shiftier, getting, getting a little bit more fakes. Um, for some players, that's what I want. For some players, uh like I said, we, we try to play a style where we don't need that as much, um, where, you know, where we're catching the ball in space and we don't need to make a fake. And then we're attacking into space. And if that space is taken away, then we want to pass the ball to whoever, you know, they left open instead of necessarily trying to make a second move or a third move um, to create our own shot. Um, that's just kind of the style that we try to play. So we talk a little bit about hip turns versus drop steps. I think you might have done a study on this. Um, it's a really interesting yeah. topic, and I would love to hear your opinion on that. Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, so uh, 
basic idea, uh, you know, a typical drop step, if I'm moving to my right, uh, I'm going to plant my right foot, you know, and, and I need to change directions at an angle. I'm going to plant my right foot, drop my left foot, and now I'm moving to my left. Um, a hip turn, instead of planting that right foot, I'm leaving the ground. And while I'm in the ground, I'm turning to create that angle uh, to move to my to my left and at an angle. Um, so I know with uh, um, without video, it's probably tough to to see yeah. or to imagine. Yeah. Um, but that's the idea. Um, essentially, the difference is with a with a drop step, your foot is planting. With a with a um, hip turn, you're turning with your feet in the air. Um, so, uh, the study that I did looked at, um, defense and basically just a simple change of direction. Um, it's by no means, is it a perfect study or does it perfectly capture what actually happens in basketball? But, um, you know, to me, there had to be a start. I, the, the study that I, uh, had envisioned when I started my PhD was about three steps further. And when I learned how research worked and stuff like that, uh, this was kind of like the first step that somebody would have to do to be able to get to uh, what I eventually wanted to do if I had stayed in academia. So, uh, yeah, I mean, basically just looked at which one was quicker, um, you know, from, you know, from basically from point A to point B um, uh, with one one simple change of direction. Um, and uh the first time uh the subject did it i used college uh women's college basketball players uh, not my own um and uh the first time i believe i think yeah, either had 12 or 13 participants and all but one uh did a drop step naturally so the first instruction was you know get to the cone change directions come back this way um, and uh, when inspecting it on video, all but one player used a drop step um, as their initial movement. Um, that's what they'd been taught. That's what they'd practiced. That's what they used. Uh, so then we did the drop step, you know, where they're instructed to use a drop step, and then we did the, where they were instructed to use a hip turn, um, and they got to practice each of those a couple times and before they did it for real. And even though they did the drop step naturally the um, hip turn ended up being statistically quicker um, and I mean it was a while ago that I did the study I can't remember if every single person was faster in the hip turn but it was a majority of them were faster using the hip turn um, and it was statistically st the, the differences were statistically significant um, that the you know the average was um, faster um, using the hip turn than the drop step. Um, the other big reason why I advocate for a, a hip turn over a drop step is I just believe it's safer, um, especially with female basketball players where ACL injuries are so prominent and. Um, one of the areas where girls tear their ACL is, um, you know, a plant or a cut. Um, so I know 
two girls who I knew the best when they tore their ACL. Um, one who I was helping to recruit when she was a senior in high school. The other one I had worked with once or twice when she was a college freshman. Um, both of them tore their ACL on a cut. And the high school player, she tore hers on a basically a drop step playing defense. She was moving to her right, I believe. And the girl crossed over from left to right. And so she did a drop step to try to recover and her foot kind of stuck in the ground. Her foot didn't pivot as she was making the drop step. So she was basically turned at a 45 degree angle with her body, but her foot was still pointing, you know, uh, 90 degrees or 180 degrees to however you want to think of it um, from, from her original movement. Um, and so consequently she tore, that's how she tore her ACL. And so to me, if she had uh, hip turned in that case and the the torque on the knee wouldn't be there because the change of direction happens with your feet in the air. Um, and so that to me, I don't have any evidence. I don't have any research to support this. This is, this is purely my belief, um, this part of it. The speed part, I have, you know, a little bit of research to support that but the but the safety aspect i don't have any research to support it it's just my personal belief um uh that it's safer um because of uh because your feet are off the air um when you're changing direction so you you lose that possibility of that foot getting stuck in the ground mm -hmm. and your body turning quickly in one direction but you're uh, trail leg or your pivot leg not uh, turning or not pivoting on the ball of your foot and getting stuck in the ground and then all that torque um, goes towards your knee. Um, so those those are my two reasons. The main reason you know performance related is, is the speed aspect and then the secondary is uh, my personal belief that it's also a safer movement. Doesn't it um, engage the natural elasticity in your body too to make it a quicker explosion? Yeah, that's, that's basically uh, the argument that I made. Um, like, you know, my research didn't, you know, we didn't go into why, uh, you know, basically the first, first level was just looking at, you know, which one is faster. Um, but in, in the paper, when I discussed, you know, my beliefs on why it would be um, uh, faster, um, that's why is, uh, you know, it, it basically uses the stretch shortening cycle um, you know, uh, and increases the elasticity, allows for a, a quicker um, push-off, more explosive push-off um, than a drop step. Um, the other thing that I noted in the study, um, and one of the reasons why people tend to argue against the hip turn is um, the, in the hip turn, they covered a greater distance in the wrong direction, if that makes sense. So when I'm moving to my right and I get to the cone, they moved further past the cone in order to change directions to go back to their left mm -hmm. than the drop step. The drop step would get right to the cone and they could stop right at the cone and, and change directions. And so people tell me that's why the, the hip turn is slower is because you're actually moving two or four or six inches in the wrong direction, let's say. Um, but 
even though that happened in the study and they and you know they basically gave up that four or six inches of ground they were still faster and it was really only again i forget exactly how i set up the study but i mean the test was over you know like two feet it wasn't like they gained ground eventually you know um and after six feet or 10 feet or 20 feet it was faster it was after you know despite going four inches in the wrong direction you know they were faster over you know, 18 inches or 24 inches. Wow. Um, and, and so, um, you know, to me, again, it's, it is, it's that elasticity, it's a quicker push, uh, more explosive push. Um, you know, I also think um, the drop step tends to lead towards a slower. So if I'm moving to my right, I plant my right foot. It ends up being with a slow step with my left foot. Yep. Whereas a hip turn naturally lends itself to, I land on two feet, and now I'm naturally going to step across with my right foot to go towards my left, so I can actually step further um, with what essentially becomes my first step uh, with my right foot. Mm -hmm. um, and then that second step with my left foot, I'm now much, much further than what I could get with a drop step and my first step with my left foot. No doubt. Um, especially if you're of the basketball mindset where you're not supposed to cross your feet. So you plant with your right foot, you step as far as you can with your left foot, but then your next step with your right foot, you're actually not gaining ground because you're just shortening your stance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, uh, also putting on the brakes by take, by with your foot getting yeah. out, in front of your, out in front of your body, it's a braking mechanism anyways. Right. So, uh, so all these things I think are why, um, to me, it's fairly clear that the hip turn is yeah. is quicker, regar regardless of of whether or not you lose four inches or six inches or whatever. Um, you know, I think I think it's fairly clear that the hip turn is faster. Um, you know, I will admit the study probably could have been done better. Um, it probably needs to be replicated um, to you know continue to substantiate and create more evidence. Yeah. Um, but I think, but I I wouldn't expect uh, the um, results to change very much. Well, when you're watching sports, I'm sure you, you notice that every time you watch basketball or if you watch a defensive back in football or if you're watching really lacrosse, soccer, whatever. I mean, are you seeing people naturally, they, they say they do drop steps, they say they don't cross their feet, but at the end of the day, they do hip turns and they do cross their feet. Yeah. Yeah, I've had – I did a clinic with a, with a couple – young coaches um in uh china years ago and and they were basically you know had just finished their playing career and were moving into to coaching and one of them's dads was like a famous coach i guess and uh and we're out there and like for whatever reason that's two defensive stations so i was at one end teaching defense and they were at the other end teaching one of the other guys was at the other end teaching defense and all these chinese coaches came over to me and they were watching me and they're like, how come he's teaching it different than you? And I'm like, I don't know. And so I went down. I'm like, I'm like, that's not what you do. He's like, yes, it is. And then we got this big argument. I'm like, dude, guard me. And uh, I mean, he was, you know, he was a way better player, way quicker than I am. Um, you know, but I attacked him a little bit and changed directions. Um, and to recover, he crossed his feet. I'm like, you just crossed your feet. He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, yes, you did. I'm like, let me get this on video. 
And, like, we even showed him on video, and he still wouldn't agree that he crossed his feet. He was so adamant that he'd been taught his whole life not to, taught his, to, to, uh, to cross his feet. And his, you know, dad was a championship coach teaching people not to cross their feet. But he crossed his feet, you know. And he just wouldn't, wouldn't you know, admit it. And, uh, um, and stuff. And so finally, we just like agreed to disagree. I'm like, all right, just whatever. But this is what you actually do. Um, <laughs> and stuff. But, but people are like, that's what they've been taught. And so they're going to continue to say that they do what they've been taught, even though in reality, once you get in a game, and you have to move as fast as you can, you know, you, you move as fast as you can. And generally, that's going to be crossing your feet instead of doing a slow step slide. Yeah, well, it's not possible to run, uh, step slide when someone's running. <laughs> I mean, if, yeah, exactly. yeah. it's just not, you know, if you were racing, you would make both people run or both people shuffle. But, uh, well, Brian, this right. is awesome stuff, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, I've been kind of wanting to do this for a while, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. It was a good talk. Got any uh, what? Got any uh, books you want to uh, pitch to this to the to the listeners here? We got a lot of coaches that come on and listen. What what if someone wanted to learn more? What what would be the top couple books that you'd recommend for them? Uh, I mean, if they're interested in kind of the stuff we talked about at the beginning, you know, I have Fake Fundamentals and Fake Fundamentals too. They're both available on Kindle. Um, and then I think uh, probably my the most relevant book. Um, probably regardless of sport. I mean, it's obviously basketball center, but there's probably a lot of um, transferable information is uh, the 21st century basketball practice, um, which basically just talks about practice design and some of the stuff like block and, and random practice and stuff like that. Um, you know, it goes into a lot of stuff like that. The drills that I talk about are specific to basketball, but I think most of the information is somewhat general. Awesome. I mean, it, it's available. It's available on Amazon as a Kindle. Um, and then it's available as a paperback at lulu, L-U-L-U dot com slash Brian McCormick. Awesome. Hey, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, good luck this season. We'll be in touch. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye.